and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. And I am really, really excited to be able to have a very special guest on the show this week,、uh, Dr. Sven Grimm, and many of you may know him. He is, of course, the director of the Stellenbosch University Center for Chinese Studies in lovely Cape Town, South Africa. There, Kobus, I got to say it: lovely Cape Town, <laughs> South Africa.、Uh, it's been a while. Johannesburg is、uh, not lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Sven, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Well, we have three topics、uh, as usual on the show, and、uh, really, the the one topic. That just exploded on Twitter and exploded, of course, all across the media last week. Was the、uh, the comments of、uh, the Nigerian、uh, central bank governor Lamido Sanusi? I hope I'm saying that correct. And、uh, he really just、uh, un, you know unleashed in a, in a in an op-ed in the Financial Times. We're going to talk about both his comments, and then we're going to talk about the Chinese reaction from Hua Chunying, who's the Foreign Ministry spokeswoman.、Uh, then we'll go on to the upcoming BRICS summit. This is the fifth BRICS summit, and it'll be held in Durban, South Africa, on March 26th and 27th. And Sven and his team at the Center for Chinese Studies have issued a couple of different reports, and we'll get. We'll really talk about: Do the BRICS matter, and what is this summit? What do we actually want to hear and see and expect to, to see out of this upcoming summit? And then finally, since most of you, our listeners, are our students,、uh, masters, PhDs, postdocs,、um, since we have Sven on the show, we're going to talk about kind of the opportunities for Sino-African research and、uh, and where scholarship is happening, where are the job opportunities, and just in general looking at the field of, of Sino-African research as a whole and what where the opportunities are. So. Let's get started right away with、uh, with the comments that were rather explosive.、Uh, this is not a narrative that we have seen coming from people in positions of power as high as Lamido Sanusi, who again is the central bank governor of Nigeria.、Uh, Kobus he really took off the gloves in this op-ed、uh, in the、uh, in the Financial Times on March 11th. And、uh, let me just read you the headline: Matt, Africa must get real about Chinese ties. I'm going to read a couple quotes from this, and I'd like to get Kobus first your reaction, and then also go to to Sven for some insights on this. So here's his basic premise: quote, "So China takes our primary goods and sells us manufactured ones. This was also the essence of colonialism. The British went to Africa and India to secure raw materials and markets. Africa is now willingly opening itself up to a new form of imperialism. One of the themes, Kobus, that we've had on this show was." The words imperialism and the words colonialism do not fit what the Chinese are doing in Africa, but I have to say that、uh, Sanusi actually makes a very compelling case here. Yeah, it was interesting.、Um, it seemed to me that there seemed to be fluctuations within the piece of him being a little bit more conciliatory towards China, and then very much not.、Um, you know, so on the one hand, he kind of threw out words like colonialism and imperialism,、um, and that obviously got picked up by the media.、Um, and then at the same time, if you read his full op-ed in Financial Times, he, he actually says that he, you know, he doesn't propose what he calls a divorce between China and Africa. He wants it. He just wants the Terms of the relationship to be thought about again, and he actually wants China to make money in Africa, but he wants it in a way that will develop the continent, which seems a little bit more relaxed than you know it would seem from the headlines. Sven, what was your reading of of of, of his perspective? It was a very 
clever way to, to use the, the keywords that would be picked up, I think. Um, the, the discussion itself is, I think, getting to that level more and more and, and, and realizing that there is opportunities with the Chinese engagement about how do we pick up on that and what exactly is driving the Chinese ang- uh, activities. The Chinese are very blunt and not wanting to do helping, or not wanting to help the continent but engage with it, and that could result in benefits for Africa, but how do you how do you get those results? And I think that's a very helpful helpful discussion to have on the African continent now. Now, you, at the beginning of your comments, you said that he used the right words in order to get it picked up, and, and he played right into what I've, I describe as the, the, quote, negative narrative. And this is something that is a theme in the international press coverage of the Chinese in Africa. Uh, it's something that uh, blogger uh, Lu Jinghao wrote about last week on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com, where he says that there's a heavy discussion that falls into this embedded narrative of the Chinese being the colonialists and the imperialists in Africa, and the Western media really likes to pick that up. But he was more subtle in, in his comments, though. What, what's your take in terms of what you, your, the response that you saw from the international media on, this, uh, on his comments? It's a bit simplistic, and it does pick up on the keyword, I think. Um, I think it is true to say that the, what a media phrase would be, the honeymoon is over. Well, yes, obviously, after 10 years, you get a more realistic picture of mutual expectations and what can be done. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we now enter into an adversary, a state of an adverse relations, if you want. It's it's just getting more realistic, and it's it's healthy, I think. It's good. You know, Cobus, one of the things that we talked about, particularly after the BBC uh, Africa debate that was in Lusaka last year, was how African governments need to start standing up to the Chinese and negotiate much more firmly. Um, and this seems to be what it, that actually may look like. Let me read you another quote and to get your comments on this. The days of the non-aligned movement that united us after colonialism are gone. China is no longer a fellow underdeveloped con- economy. It is the world's second biggest capable of the same forms of exploitation as the West. It is a significant contributor to Africa's deindustrialization and underdevelopment. <clears throat> You know, if I was sitting in Beijing and I came, particularly someone like Xi Jinping, whose father came out of the communist revolutionary movement, who still looks at China as one of the poorest countries in the world. In fact, let's not forget, there are more poor people in China than there are in all of Africa. That must have come as quite a shock to them, do you think? I mean, the the level of insult in the foreign ministry must have been very high, I imagine. Yeah, and that's, that's, I guess, one of the reasons, and that, that plus its timing, you know, just before the BRICS summit, must be one of the reasons why the foreign ministry actually chose to actually respond to it in detail, you know, and to, and to say that they, that it's far from the truth and that China, you know, kind of is, is China's ties with, with Africa is under the principles of sincerity, friendliness, equality, and so on and so on. So, you know, it, they seem stunned, you know, kind of from my perspective. Um, obviously, I think also the fact that, that um, Sanusi couched it in a, a narrative about his, his own father's engagement with China, because apparently his own father was a diplomat who was, who was posted in China, and then, you know, kind of became very enamored with the Chinese revolution and um, intended to, to, be, to turn towards China in a, in, the, in a Cold War context. And now Sanusi is coming as the son of this father to say, you know, kind of let's get real. And China, you know, China isn't a revolutionary partner. I mean, that, that it, all, it, 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 it packs a lot of emotional punch, you know, kind of, and that I, th- I found interesting. Sven, how would you expect the, the Chinese foreign ministry and the executive leadership in China to respond to something like this? The Hua Chunying, who's the foreign ministry spokesperson, 
spokeswoman gave a very what I considered a very pro forma response where she said that quote uh, it, they are you know his comments were far from the facts and then talked again about mutual benefit win win blah 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 uh, it was to me a very uninspired response what do you think they are thinking right now particularly in the in the embassy as well as in uh, in Beijing. There isn't one thinking in China, and I think you would get a, a large variety of reactions. But I think one of the major the, the the major feelings is one of there is something ungrateful happening in Africa. We are engaging with them, and now they bite our hand very very harshly. It does pick up, however, on popular perception, and I think many of the official Chinese are not unaware of a, a, a criticism that you, a popular criticism that you would get. Uh, sometimes, in some countries, it's it's bordering xenophobia, or it's actually beyond it already in some cases. But uh, you do the, the officials do know that there is a problem, and I think the only thing that you can react to when you are surprised and you know there is actually a problem is to revert back to the official line, and that is what they've done. Well, this is more than just rhetoric that's at stake here. One-third of all oil imports to China now come from Africa. Uh, according to the Council on Foreign Relations, a report that they published on February 8, 2012, so that's about a year now, so those, the statistics may have changed. Here are the top five oil importing countries to China from Africa. Angola, Sudan, Republic of Congo, not, not DRC, Republic of Congo, Equatorial Guinea, and Nigeria. Sven, do you see comments like this affecting the Sino-Nigerian relationship, particularly because it is so important for the oil supply? There will be a level of official sulking, I think, for for some reason. Uh, I don't think that the business itself will be affected because the Chinese side has been so pragmatic uh, all the way. But there would be a little bit of a... As I say, a sulking, we don't quite know where you come from and why do you say that. Uh, actually, we do, but it is very harsh and it is very much uh, it's up front. It is, as I said, it is to be picked up by the official, uh, sorry, by the, by the media, uh, and it is triggering a discussion. And the discussion is happening, so... I don't see an effect on the on the economic relationship. I don't see that really. So on the substance of the relationship, you think that's going to be stable, but at the same time, uh, you know, maybe they won't take every meeting in the uh, in the embassy that they used to. Probably at that level, it's it's not quite comparable to European countries inviting the Dalai Lama, but it's about at that level. You have a little bit of a bump, a dent in the relationship. It's not at that high level friendliness uh, for some time, but that will get back to normal because there are interests at stake, and it's about business mostly. And uh, and in Cobus, it's also about politics here. And when I read these comments, it it really harkened back to some of the uh, pre-presidential comments of Michael Sada in, in in Zambia. And I say pre-presidential because after he assumed the presidency, Sada's tone changed with respect to the Chinese. But when he was in the opposition, uh, he was by far the most notable and vocal critic of the Chinese, uh, really you know personifying the the opposition and to, to to Chinese investment in Africa. He of course has a much more sophisticated sophisticated and subtle policy when it comes to the Chinese. But when it comes to pop, to populism here and the politics of, of saying these things, as Sven said, there is a very, very large audience, not only in Africa, but worldwide, that believes this. What's your thought on the political impact? 
Um, I'm not sure whether the two are necessarily so similar in the sense that, obviously, you know, kind of Sato was in a was was fighting an election battle, and he had a lot to gain from populist enthusiasm about this issue. Sanusi is is a banker, um, you know, so he's much more independent in that way, and he's also he's independent in the sense that he has already um, announced that he's not getting, he's not seeking a second term. So he's he's kind of like he's, he feels that he's done his work at the at the Nigerian Central Bank. And he's actually quitting soon. Apparently, that's what, that's what he told a magazine in London. Um, at the same time, when you read his full his full up in, in Financial Times, he you know he's, he's, so, he's such an interesting writer because he, he throws out these these real kind of harsh media lines, and they and he knows that they'll or you know one one would assume he probably would would guess that they they would get picked up by the by the media. But then he you know for example he's, he's also actually pretty hard nosed and tough. In relation to Nigeria itself, so for example, he says that we we can't blame the Chinese for any foreign or any other foreign power for our country's problems, and um, we must blame ourselves um, for a, you know a bunch of, of problems, including subsidy scams, oil you know oil corruption, and so on and so on. Um, you know, so and then a, a paragraph earlier, he's, he's literally actually blaming the Chinese for deindustrialization. So you know, it's a little bit difficult to say what. It, 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 occasionally, it has a little bit more of a, of a feeling like. He's writing a rant rather than a, a, you know a constructed cons, you know con, um, a constructed argument, and that that I found weird and interesting. Do you think? And let me just pick up on the quote that you you were reading. He says at the end of that that quote that said, "It is a critical precondition for development in Nigeria and the rest of Africa that we remove the rose tinted glasses through which we view China." So I guess, Kobus, my question, staying with the politics of this. Does Sanusi's comments open the way for other African leaders to do what we've talked about, which is to, to, to basically strike a better deal with the Chinese and to stand up? And should we expect to see more of these kinds of comments coming? You know, we saw it out of Botswana. We've now we've seen it out of Zambia. We're start, we've seen it certainly out of the unions in, in South Africa and now here in Nigeria. Yeah, I mean, you know, South Africa's president has also called uh, the oh, China-Africa right. relationship unsustainable. unsustainable. So, um, and I mean, he did it at his speech at you know at, at a summit. So, the, so that was interesting. The um, yeah, I think I think maybe um, what's also growing, and I think Sven knows knows more about that than I do. But the, there might be a growing awareness that what's needed in Africa is to move beyond bilateral relationships with China and to to start negotiating with China as as regional and economic blocks, um, and to have a little bit more of a, of a collective, uh, you know, bargaining power. Svenja, so I don't know if you agree with that. It actually was the starting point of why we have something like the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. The original idea was an African one. Let's negotiate or let's discuss as a block. But the Chinese don't like that too much because it does. It could potentially mean that they're getting cornered by a, a larger group of African countries. But yes, I think the idea is there. Um, and you're right in pointing out that Zuma was critical. His predecessor Mbeki also had mentioned quite critical remarks on the Chinese engagement in Africa. So you can hear that. It's not new. It's probably new at, at that level and at the forcefulness it's mentioned. But it's probably to get, uh, as I say, to have people listen. Yeah, but we've, you know, since the 50s and 60s, we've heard so much about pan-Africanism as a movement. But there really hasn't been much of a precedent. The AU is nowhere near as effective as it as it was hoped to be. Is there any example of Africa negotiating as a bloc to especially against a power as large as China? 
Uh, no, I don't think so, and I think the expectation is actually too high. There is, as you say, Pan-African rhetorics, but you do have 54 countries. The collective action problem that you have here is massive. How do you get all of those with very different interests, with very different trade patterns with China, by the way? It's not just one one trade pattern. You have some export uh, resource exporting countries, some that don't export resources, uh, you have small, big countries, interesting markets, not so interesting markets from a Chinese perspective. How do you get all of those in line and negotiate as a bloc with China? I don't, I'm not very optimistic there, but what I hope comes from that discussion is a thought of what's your strategy? How do you want to, why do you want to engage with China and on what? And what can the Chinese deliver that others can't deliver and vice versa? How do you need other partners than China for which aspects? And if if it helps to have a discussion on that started, fine. I hope so. Uh, one quick question for you, though. And the, the one aspect that I was surprised that he didn't mention, uh, which given that he's a central bank governor, is, of course, the RMB. And that was the one, you know, the China's subsidy of the RMB for many, many years. It has inflated in recent years, but uh, has long been criticized by the United States and, and, and a- academics and intellectuals like Paul Krugman, who've said that the biggest threat to the developing world is China's currency. And and I was surprised that Sanusi didn't talk about that because that's what ultimately makes Chinese products more competitive on the global market is the fact that the, the, the Central Bank of China is artificially suppressing the value of the currency. Why do you think he didn't mention that? Sven. Is that the ma- is is that the major problem for Africa? I, I'm not so sure there because I think the major point is to attract investment at the moment. It's not so much the competition with products. I know that that was his angle and that deindustrialization was his angle, um, but it's not the major problem of China-Africa relations at the moment. I don't think so. And it's a very technical discussion that probably doesn't appeal to to any media pickup anyway. Yeah. Um, plus, it would play more towards a Western discussion. I, I don't know the agenda of Sanusi in detail, but I do assume that there is a little inclination to play too much of a Western card there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he did, sorry to interrupt, he did, though, um, say that Africans have to actively fight off Chinese imports promoted by predatory policies, but well, that, that was one. Of, you know, that that was a single sentence in a in a whole in a whole article. So and I guess that's the sentence, but then yeah, but then de de-emphasized it. I think. Uh, let's look to the future very quickly, wrapping up this topic. Uh, Kobus, what's your thoughts on where uh, you know is this the beginning of a of a new dialogue between China and Africa with a more a more confident Africa, or is this just a one off in your opinion? You know, I, I think it might be. It, 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 there might be um, the development of an awareness among among certain African leaders that it is occasionally worthwhile to to say these kind of things in public. You know, I'm not sure whether to which extent it's going to necessarily directly, you know, translate into a new attitude towards China, um, or to, to which extent it's going to be a new kind of PR policy for them. But the the, the quick response they got from from the um, you know from the Chinese government, you know, kind of might make it worthwhile in certain kinds of certain kinds of specific cases um, to play this card in in public. And Sven, my last question to you on this topic is: If you were a paid consultant of the Chinese government, Xi Jinping comes to you. And he says, and he very well might, given your, your prestige, so I, I actually don't put it past that. But he says, how am I supposed to respond to this? What would you advise the Chinese government that when you see more forceful uh, points of view coming out of African governments? What's the best way for them to respond? 
Uh, I would probably say don't overreact, don't push too hard back because you would actually play into stereotypes there. If you have too harsh statements as a response, it sounds like, oh, we've made a point here. And they are actually behaving like a bully. So don't, rather play it low. Do repeat your statements. It's very much how they did react. And then build on the, the specific, the pragmatic relationship that you have. And I would see that as a point. As a, as a last sentence there for, for what Kobus just said, I agree on the playing a card towards the popular perception. And I think we might also see a more critical China after a while because you do see some discussions about security concerns uh, that are becoming more prominent and Africa being a high-risk investment destination. So it might actually mean a, a more realistic picture on both sides. Okay, well, this is the beginning of a, of a different style of dialogue between, uh, between African governments and African leaders and the Chinese. Uh, this is something we want to hear from you and comments from you. We've had a very, very lively discussion on this particular topic and on Sanusi's comments on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, we'd like to hear your opinions. Do you agree, disagree with anything you've heard this, uh, on the show so far? Uh, this is really going to be an ongoing topic that we'll continue with. Okay, moving on to our second topic. Uh, the leaders of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa are going to be getting together for a powwow for the fifth BRIC summit in Durban, South Africa, later this month on March 26th and 27th. Uh, really, the highlight of it, though, is that this is going to be the inaugural foreign trip for China's new, newly appointed, newly elected, I don't know what you want to call it, um, uh, President Xi Jinping. And uh, not to mention, also, he's going to be traveling with his, uh, his, his wife, Peng Liyuan, who we're going to talk about as well. Um, Sven, BRICS summits have been something of a mystery to me because the BRICS as an organization, as a multinational organization, is very different than, uh, than say, NATO or than the OECD. You know, this is a group of countries that, as you've talked about in terms of Africa, have very different interests, have very different agendas, but they come together. Uh, what's, the, what's the point, I guess? Um, I think they are a big projection screen at the moment because it's very unclear what the policies behind it are. But the comparisons and also the, the organizations that you mentioned are not the right comparison for them. They are very much like the G8 or the G7. It's okay. an informal uh, meeting. It's a, G7 started as a fireplace chat, if you want. It's a bit more of a, a summit circus now, and the BRICS are similar. It's, it's the, the point very much, I think, that the bottom line is to be seen with each other. And to make sure that you, you mutually support your global position. Are there hints of the non-aligned movement here that is an alternative to the big powers? That this, these are the new emerging powers in the world and, and they're getting together, they're aligning their interests. Uh, noticeably absent from these summits are you know, the Americans, the British, the French, the traditional powers. Is there some, some hint of that or is, 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 polit is this more of an economic summit? No, but they do meet with the Europeans, they do meet with the Americans, with the Canadians and others in the G20. And as a BRICS group, you coordinate your position for the G20 and also in aspects that are beyond it. But uh, I don't see it as, as I say, for me, the point of reference is the G7 and G8. And you so have a discussion on economics and on politics as well. Okay. And very much on global politics. So how do you change the IMF? How do you change the World Bank? How do you change global structures? Good, but you wouldn't agree on all the points. And I think that's the, currently the, the discussion is how much do we have a shared agenda? How, how, where are the common points that we can push and where are the points that we rather don't touch in this group? 
Well, let's get a preview from you. Let's. What are some of the themes that you're expecting to see at this year's summit, and uh, and what will people be watching uh, Xi Jinping for? Two different aspects there. I think for the for the topics, obviously, the key agenda is Africa and how to engage with Africa. Uh, I, I'm deliberately avoiding the term how to help Africa because that would be the Glen Eagle Summit of the G8. <laughs> Um, but how to engage with Africa is the key topic, and it's about investment, it's about opportunities, it's about, uh, it will also be about continental security because there's concerns by both China and Brazil and probably also other actors on that. So it will be a long list of, in the declaration, a long list of topics that have been discussed and some more or less precise or vague statements on we all support African security and African integration. I think that, for me, would be the, the key thing. Xi Jinping will probably be more closely observed in how does he engage. He, he has a reputation of being very much more informal and much more accessible than his predecessor. And how does he engage at the international um, stage for, for, uh, with that attitude? Is that the same attitude? Is he more approachable? Is he more lenient? Is he more, more open to suggestions? Whether that translates into politics remains to be seen, but it's more of the personal behavior, I think, that currently is of interest. So if one of the themes is to engage Africa as a continent, will other African leaders besides the South African leadership be present at the summit? Because I've read a lot of criticism of South Africa that says that they don't represent the continent, particularly in, in summits like this. Um, yes, it always comes up, but particularly also with the G20, where South Africa is the only African country. Do they represent the continent or don't they? I, I would say they, they don't, but they are, however, the only African country, so you can't work around that. What South Africa normally does, and also for this summit, is uh, have consultation with other African countries around it, alongside it, before it, after it. For this particular summit, there's an invitation for a couple of African leaders. Don't uh, ask me to name them now because that would be the, of course, the, the prone to mistake and I would cause outcries if I forget one or the Fair other. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> but there are a number of them that are invited to the, uh, to the summit, pretty much like the G8 Outreach 5. Um, with that, I'll probably get already some <laughs> some not-so-nice sure. comments there with a comparison, but it's a very similar setting. Cobus, what are you expecting to see from this summit? What, some, uh, what are some of the themes that you, you expect to see and that you'd like to see? Well, one of the big themes that's coming up is, is um, a developmental focus on Africa. And one of the big um, and controversial issues the, you know, that is apparently going to be discussed is the issue of whether there should be a BRICS development bank. Um, and I think it's, it's very controversial and people are trying to decide how worthwhile it would be, how much it would actually help Africa. Um, you know, there are cons- people have raised some concerns um, among others, I think Martin Davies um, has raised concerns that uh, that it might be used, um, you know, to push uh, to push Chinese interests, economic interests, particularly and particularly the the, the currency. Um, so it's, it'll be very interesting to see how they they balance the, the 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 issues of being both wanting to develop Africa and then actually being in competition with each other and with South Africa within the African market. So you know, kind of, I think it, it, it's I'm not sure how they're going to. Res- Resolve that, or whether they actually will resolve it, but it, it, you know, I think it'll be in the air. I would guess. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine that a development bank. You know, there already is a development bank in Africa, so yet another development bank seems like it's kind of picking up on the 
you know the aid agenda and the aid industry because I, I you know I here in Asia the Asian Development Bank I I question you know but we'll we'll kind of hold that for another another theme you know uh, Kobus Xi Jinping will be traveling with uh, with his wife Peng Liyuan and for many people who may not be familiar with Peng Liyuan um, she's got a little bit of star power she's uh, you know people are re- kind of comparing her to the to the Jackie O of uh, of China of Kennedy's wife uh, she's she's a, a celebrity in her own right. Uh, she's definitely a, a, a huge break from from the past of, of Chinese first ladies, uh, particularly Hu Jintao's, who I can't even ever recall seeing her, much less know her name. Um, what do you? What will be the impact of Peng Liyuan and how the Chinese may actually employ Peng Liyuan for, uh, for 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 soft power diplomacy in Africa on this first trip? Yeah, this is going to be super interesting. Like, it's it's really fun to look up on Google Images, images of Peng Liyuan, because she appears in crazy costumes during a lot of different kind of folk concerts in China, among others in, like, a very fashion-forward version of a military uniform. Um, so it's it's she, she's fun. She's kind of really interesting to see, and she's apparently scheduled to, to, to address an audience at a public event in Durban during the summer. So I think this is really new and it's interesting and I was wondering whether you guys think um, that there is a, some kind of attempt to try and, and create a kind of a Michelle Obama kind of figure um, or, or you know kind of uh, you know this kind of friendly female face of China or whether you think that she represents a completely new kind of figure on the, on the stage. Sven I'll put that to you. <laughs> it's not really my area to, well, to have the more of a, a yellow press perspective, but um, in the discussion on soft power, I think that actually does make sense to have a, a modern um, and sort of glamorous face of China does help, obviously, yes. And she's kind of like a pop star, so, I mean, that actually might play very well. I mean, uh, in many African but communities... She's a, she- Sorry if I come in here. She's a pop star very much in, in, in China. So That's in right. Africa, people wouldn't know her, but she can be the modern and friendly and person in her own right. And as you say, somebody you do see, like Michelle Obama, you see in public, Hu Jintao's wife you've never seen. So there is already a difference here. <laughs> I guess let's just say she's not afraid of being in front of the paparazzi and a whole bunch of cameras. And that might actually be, you know, help her. But, you know, and, and, but Sven, I want to kind of bring up a, a, a broader issue here. You know, the last first lady of China, whose name that I knew, um, was Jiang Qing, of course, the wife of Mao Zedong, who, you know, in, 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 the, in the annals of history did not go down as, as the most popular first lady uh, in, in world history. Um, and so I'm wondering if this is a really, if, if you think that, you know, reading Chinese history, particularly contemporary Chinese history, uh, this is a very dramatic break with the past. It is, but we're in the 21st century and China nowadays is very different from China in the 1960s. Um, so, from that perspective, it's it's a logical. Uh, I think it's a logical move forward. She should probably be careful not to be too glamorous, because we also have a discussion on don't be too lush with of, um, in, in terms of officials. Xi Jinping just wanted to wants to tackle corruption and uh, unuseful spending. If you are too glamorous there, it might backfire for your own campaign. But I think it, in terms of having a First lady um, who has a, a public role that does mm-hmm. live up to the to the to the idea of having a, a modernized China and and comparing China is always comparing itself with the U.S. Uh, it's not, but 
it, it's getting in terms of public communication, it probably might learn one lesson or two from, from the U.S. Interesting. Well, we have a picture of uh, Peng Yuan on our Facebook page, which you can, you can see. Uh, and so it's one of the kind of changes that we can expect at the BRIC summit and also one of the, the key factors that we'll be looking at when Xi Jinping, of course, steps out onto the international stage for the first time uh, in the summit on March 26 and 27 in Durban. So one of the many themes that we'll be looking for. Uh, just a quick uh, announcement here. We have just launched uh, this past week our first uh, Weibo account at Weibo. Uh, dot com and uh, and this is only for Chinese speakers. So if you don't speak Chinese, this is going to sound a little bit weird. But it's uh, Weibo dot com dian zhongfeixiangmu, and so that is uh, the China Africa project in Chinese. Um, and so we're trying to reach out to a much more of a Chinese audience, and we're going to be creating more content in Chinese to engage that audience and to bring that into uh, our discussion. Also, not, don't forget that over on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com, uh, our man in Shanghai, Tendai Musakwa, is translating Chinese social media on China-Africa relations, and he's also China- translating certain news articles as well in order to bring what's behind the Great Firewall into the public discourse here in the West in the English-speaking world and also in Africa and Europe as well. So uh, a little bit of plug for that. And don't forget, you can also download our iPhone app and our Android app. Go find those in the respective stores as well. So since we have Sven on the show today, and since the vast majority of our listenership of this show, our Facebook community, and our followers of our various Twitter feeds and, and, and blogs are, are students. Most are between 18 and 24. Most are undergrad and master's students with a sprinkling of PhDs. Um, we wanted to take this opportunity to talk to Sven about kind of the state of Sino-African research and also what are the opportunities and where are some of the trends that he's seeing in terms of that. So let me start with the first question is, despite the fact that we're seeing this huge uh, you know, jump in engagement between the Chinese and the Africans. Are you seeing a similar level of interest on the part of students in Africa? Because when we talk about uh, a lot of Sino-African research, it's people like Deborah Braudigam. It's PhDs, you know, Solange Chadelach out of uh, Sciences Po in, in Paris. It's uh, Johanna Janssen in Denmark. I see a lot of Westerners, but I don't see that many Africans. Is that just because I'm not looking in the right place? Or is that, in fact, there's a, a deficit of Africans who are doing their pursuing masters and, and, and PhDs in this field? There's probably a bit more than meets the eyes at, at first glance, but it's definitely true that in terms of high-profile research, you have a scarcity of Africans here, and that has to do with shortages in the, in the academic system, finance very often, also other opportunities. Research does cost money. Social sciences research is probably not the highest on the priority list for quite a number of African countries. And and all of that, of course, then translates in how many people there are. In terms of masters and PhD students, there are actually, as I say, more than you would expect, but they do have challenges to find people who supervise them. That is a shortage if you don't have an Afri- a China program in African universities, you will have difficulties of writing your PhD in that area, obviously. Is that just because this is such a new field that the, that the, the industry has not generated a su- sufficient amount of faculty to supervise these PhDs, or is there something else endemic in the field? It's a combination of factors, I think. And, well, I could play it back and say how many, how many U.S. experts do we have on the African continent or how many people who have the expertise on Latin America. 
So regional expertise is is limited in the very first place. But then, of course, China comes with particular challenges. If you do international relations, yes, you can work on China, but it's a bit of a different beast, and it comes with own uh, own research questions that you might have to ask there, and, and that becomes a bit more difficult if you don't have the, the as I say, the supervision capacity. And you can't do field work. And how do you do the? How do you research a country that you haven't been to? You can do it as a China-Africa relations in your own country, um, but again, then you need somebody who who knows the bigger China picture and and helps you in in writing the piece there. Well, tell us about your students at Stellenbosch. Are what you know? Where do they come from? What are their interests? Are they are they pursuing jobs in the private sector afterwards in academia? What's the student body of the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch like? As a Center for Chinese Studies, we do research. We, we, not, we don't offer specific courses. We do engage in courses that the university does offer, and we are quite fortunate that we, for instance, have a program on modern foreign languages where you can learn Mandarin here at the university. Um, we do have a political science department that's very interested in, uh, in, in political economy of uh, global affairs. We have uh, various aspects which we can link to, and then that does mean that our students are from, or our affiliate students are coming from various backgrounds. Um, they are very much going into different directions, but most of them I would expect, and that's really more my, my hindsight, would aspire to go into business. There is some investment by South Africa into China. There is some more interest in engaging with Chinese uh, actors here in South Africa. So there are actually job opportunities in investment banks, um, in bigger enterprises, and, and that is one of the outlets that people actually go to, consultancies as well. Cobus, when you look at the state of research coming in the Sino-African field, are you, where are you seeing the most exciting developments? Is out of places like this, the, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences in Beijing? Is it out of the European universities, Stellenbosch, your former stomping grounds? What are you, what are you seeing in terms of the trends in the field? I think for me, um, Stellenbosch definitely has has an edge um, among the universities that I've whose, whose work I've read in um, in detail. Uh, you know, because they are they're very well situated in in both having a close relationship with with you know kind of various actors from China, including a Confucius Institute, um, and also having you know being located in Africa and also having a lots of people from other countries kind of passing through. Um, so that you know, for me when I when I was there, that helped a lot. Um, you know, kind of it seemed you know like, like a lot in academia, it frequently seems to gather around certain kind of figures who, as Fen said, would actually then takes they, they take the the uh, the opportunity and they and they they take the trouble to actually advise people. You know, kind of so like in a lot of of developments of of scholarship, you need you know all of these people they need advisors, and so they they tend to be clusters. You know, kind of 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 students working on these issues around certain kind of advisors. So in the in the South African sense, you know, you, you see some some stuff coming out of that from the the um, South African Institute for International Affairs, um, who's uh, who's you know located at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, um, you know, and uh, and I think that's also true for some of the universities in in America and in, and also in China, um, you know. But it's it's still it's it's still a young field. I mean, academia moves so, so slowly to a certain extent, you know, kind of that that you. 
at the moment, it, compared to other of, of the fields in international relations, it's still actually quite young and fresh, um, which is great. But That's at exciting, the same time, yeah. they, they, they haven't set up the kind of institutions that tend to support all of these, all of these, you know, kind of support and tend to facilitate all of the back and forth. And, and you know, kind of, you know, uh, there are a million different uh, mechanisms that need to be set up to to support this kind of research. So, Sven, it is young and it's fresh. And uh, so, if you're advising an undergrad who is considering pursuing a master's or a PhD and, and wanting to get into the field, what are some of the, the areas of research that you think offer opportunities for, uh, for aspiring um, master's and PhD candidates? That's a difficult question, actually, because I think for um, master's and PhD thesis, what you are mostly learning is methodology. You could actually research any topic under the sun. Uh, you learn while writing it. For China, and as that is my interest area, I, I do think it is a very exciting topic, Chinese-African relations particularly. I could come up with a very, very long list of things that you could do from very different topic areas, be it Chinese migrants in various African countries, be it the economic uh, engagement and who are the actors in, in various regions or countries. What are the implications or effects on uh, on trade? What are the implications and effects on your local uh, industry? What are the environmental aspects that you have to look at? All of these are different angles, and I could come up with many, many more. The topic is, at the moment, it's non-exhaustive, I think, and there's vast things that you could research. If you do your master's and PhD only with the view of who employs me later on? And if I had done that, I would never have studied political science. <laughs> when I studied political science, everybody asked me, what do you want to do with it later? Do you want to become a politician? Um, so don't just think in terms of where does that lead me, but what's my interest now and how do I learn while doing it? It's a very luxurious position, I do know, and it's in coming with insecurities. But I think that's the best I can give as advice yeah. rather than say that's the topic, you have to do that, and then you will get a job in, in five years' time. I don't see that, actually. But when you look out across the, the universe of, uh, of higher education and you see where you know, universities are, are, are investing resources into different uh, research institutes and different fields, are you optimistic or are you concerned about the role that China-Africa studies will have in the broader uh, political science, social science, economics uh, research uh, categories? At the moment, I'm concerned that I would hope that African universities, African inst uh, research institutions are, are looking more into that. There's too little. Uh, as I, I know that there is a resource question that is behind that. I know that as a developing country government, you normally tend to focus on engineering or natural sciences, not so much the social sciences. And, but given all of that, you still have to understand the big partner. And if you don't know what the drivers in China are, if you don't understand who the, the, the actors are and where they're coming from and what's, what, what's their motivation, what's their instruments that you can engage with, you, you're very much in a, in, a, in a disadvantaged position when you meet them in the very first place. There should be an own interest by policymakers to foster that area of studies much more. We would be very much happy to have research partners in East Africa and West Africa, in Central Africa, because I can tell you that we love the topic, but it's quite a stretch to cover the entire continent from Stellenbosch, which is at the most southern tip of the continent. So there, there needs to be more, I think, and actually also a discussion about various angles and discuss different perspectives there. All of that needs money and investments and um, 
it is long-term. And Corpus is right that, of course, Academia moves slowly in that because you have to build up the expertise. People have to come up, come through the system, and you have to have a PhD that is related to the topic before you can supervise others. And, of course, that means a time delay in, in any regard. Sure. Corpus, last thoughts on this subject from you. Well, it's, it's, it's a kind of a complicated situation because on the one hand, it is such a young field and it is such a, you know, academia does move slowly and they, they, they tend to, to develop quite slowly. Um, on the other hand, I remember attending a conference uh, last year where there were all of these uh, editors from journals um, who were saying like, look, you know, we've put out special editions on China-Africa in the last, you know, once or, once or twice already and we're actually, you know, trying to look to move beyond China, Africa as, as coverage, you know, kind of, so there's this weird thing in academia where on the one hand, academia itself moves very slowly, but academic fashion moves pretty quickly. Um, and it's, it's, it's very hard to, you know, kind of what, if you, if you engage in something like a PhD, that's going to take a few years. It's hard to kind of target yourself to be fashionable the moment when you, when you emerge, you know, kind of like you can, you can either be ahead of the curve or behind the curve. Um, and I think frequently it's very important to try and find something, find yourself a little bit of a niche where you're not necessarily competing against lots of other people who are doing very similar kind of work, but where you can bring some little bit of your own, you know, kind of your own insight that's not, that's not, uh, that makes you less of a cookie cutter kind of um, candidate once, once you emerge. And that obviously is, is hard, um, but you know, the more people like that there are, the the better for the field. And I, I'll throw, I'll end the show with my my, my two cents. Um, is that I think we need more Mandarin speakers. Uh, it is almost impossible to effectively study and understand the Chinese if you don't speak the language. Um, and I think from from academics' point of view, it's even more important in order to have that balance when you are doing field research in Africa or in China that you have an understanding of the language. So I feel like if you are you know a student and you have the opportunity to learn Mandarin, um, or in, in addition to English and French, uh, though, and, and Arabic as well. Um, those are all the key African languages. I think that uh, it, it will really enhance both your opportunities to get into a good school and then, of course, to do compelling research and finally afterwards to find a job. So language is my, my two cents. So we'll leave it there. Uh, Sven, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. It's really an honor. As I said uh, before the show, you are effectively the, the biggest rock star in Sino-African uh, scholarship that we've had on the show. You are about to be eclipsed, though, by Deborah Braudigan, who will be joining us on April 7th. So this is your your 15 minutes in in the spotlight but we are <laughs> we are we are so very grateful if people want to follow what the center for chinese studies is doing what are some ways that they can kind of stay on top of some of the reports that you're putting out and also some of your social media all of our publications are on our website on our facebook site we do twitter as well um and well, you can subscribe also to our news service that comes every every week with some news items. Send us an email. You will find that on the website or under the, on the Facebook site, and then we can put you on our mailing list. And the website is www.ccs.org.za. That's one way. The other is through the university, but yes, ccs.org.za is, is one. But you can also go through the sun, www.org.za 
sunstellenboschuniversity.ac.za/ccs. I like the first way better. Um, it is uh, <laughs> it's shorter, yes. I agree. <laughs> but what I like about your reports is they're nice and short. And someone like me who's got short attention, you know, short attention span, um, who really is reading more accustomed to reading tweets than big academic research reports, I, I do like the fact that you do issue two and three page reports, which are nice and concise. So I, I highly recommend following what the CCS is doing. Uh, it's really a leader in the in the space. Cobus, if people uh, want to follow you, speaking of convoluted uh, web addresses, what's the best place they can find you? Well, um, you know, I'm active on our Facebook page, and we tend to um, we try to post, you know, all of the new work done at CCS. We also try to post it on our on our Facebook page, and uh, you know, and, and, and maintain a, a close relationship there. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S T A D E N E S Q U E. And you can find me. I'm over on Twitter at E O Lander E O L A N D E R. I'm tweeting every day on basically the top four or five uh, major stories in China-Africa relations, including CCS reports as well. And I'm moderating the Facebook page, and we're also on Weibo. If you want to follow the the podcast, uh, we're everywhere we need to be. We're on Stitcher. You can search for us there. If you want to listen uh, on your cell phone, you can also download our apps. Again, as I mentioned, we're both in Google Play and the Apple iTunes Store, and you can listen to us on SoundCloud. But best of all, we hope that you subscribe to the podcast. We do it every Sunday. We talk about the week's events in China-Africa relations, and we'll be back again next Sunday for another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thanks so much for listening.